Welcome to the Weekly Grind by Investing Caffeine, a podcast designed to wake up your investment brain. This is Wade Sloan, founder of Sadoxy Capital Management, author of How I Managed $20 Billion by Age 32, and lead editor of the Investing Caffeine blog. Well, we're now in month two of the Weekly Grind podcast, and as always, we'd love to get your feedback, so please provide us your thoughts by messaging us at info at sedoxia.com. That's S-I-D as in David, O-X-I-A dot com. Or uh, you can always give us a call at 949-258-4322. Well, today's podcast is extra special because the Weekly Grind will be conducting its first ever interview. Uh, To get a little more specific, I'm honored to say I have the privilege of interviewing a longtime successful small cap and micro cap value manager, Russell Murdoch from Seabreeze Capital. So suffice it to say, I'm eagerly looking forward to that conversation. Uh, But before we get to that, uh, we're going to start today's podcast with our regular agenda of reviewing the financial markets and market moving headlines, and then move on to cover a handful of individual stocks. Uh, For those of you interested in my weekly rant, uh, unfortunately, you'll have to wait until next week before I jump um, back on my soapbox. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and dive into this week's grind podcast. Uh, if we take a look at the major indices, they took a breather this week, uh, on concerns of an inverted yield curve and slowing global growth. Uh, this anxiety, uh, resulted, um, in the S and P 500 falling eight tenths of a percent to 2,800, The Dow Jones Industrial Average turned out to be the worst performing of the major indices, um, which fell by almost 346 points, or 1.3%, which turned out to be more than double the weekly decline of the NASDAQ, um, which fell negative 0.6%. If you take a look at small cap stocks, uh, they even took it harder on the chin, with the Russell 2000 Index down a massive 3.3%. And mid-cap stocks were not too far behind, down 2.4% for the week. So definitely small, um, underperformed, um, medium, and large. Um, Overall, despite this weekly setback, um, just want to remind all the listeners that most major indices are up double-digit percentages for the year, or nearly 10%. For example, the Dow... Um, which is trailing by a tad, is still up a very respectable 9.3% for the year. Um, As a result of weak data, both internationally and domestically, uh, the 10-year Treasury yield fell 14 basis points, or 0.14%, to a yield of 2.46%. This is its largest weekly drop since December and it brings the yield to its lowest level in a year. What were some of the moving sectors this week? Um, well, banks and financials were among the hardest hit sectors, uh, down between 5 and 8% on fears of an inverted yield curve, um, which makes, uh, basically makes the bank's job of earning money on loans more challenging. Um, bucking the trend this week were sectors like gold, uh, up 2%, and consumer retail stocks up between 1% and 2% as well. 
the volatility index or fear gauge, which is generally inversely correlated to the direction of the stock market, uh, jumped a very significant 28% for the week, just highlighting uh, fear that um, was out in the equity markets. Uh, what were traders focused on this week? Um, well, the um, everybody will be talking about the release of the Mueller report. Um, uh, that was the report of Special Counsel Robert Mueller into Russian interference during the 2016 election. Uh, the Department of Justice told Congress on Friday that it received the report. And according to statements by Attorney General William Barr, there were no new additional indictments announced, and Mueller found no evidence of Russian collusion. However, although an opinion was made about uh, collusion, Mueller net made no conclusion regarding the alleged obstruction of justice um, by President Trump. Um, regardless, the investigation leaves open about a dozen other probes into President Trump and his associates, by an array of federal, state, and congressional investigators. Uh, as mentioned earlier, uh, weak manufacturing numbers were released. Um, activity in Europe um, came in lower than expected for March. Um, that was the IHS market data, and that helped send the German 10-year bond yield to negative territory for the first time since 2016. A similar survey of U.S. manufacturers also disappointed um, investors. As mentioned earlier, uh, that weak economic data led to an inverted yield curve. Um, when we talk about inverted yield curve, we're talking about when the three-month Treasury yield is higher than uh, the 10-year Treasury yield. Um, as, as we know from this phenomenon that we saw in July 2006, um, when typically when we've seen this inverted yield curve, it's been a good yield uh, leading indicator for a future market um, downturn um, and recession. Um, but despite that, um, if we look at that 2006 period when we saw the inverted yield curve, the market continued to rally for another 15 months before topping out in October of 2007. Um, and during that period, the S&P 500 index um, advanced 29%. Um, the other thing to keep in mind when we're looking at the inverted yield curve is that corporate yield spreads or the yields uh, between corporate bonds and treasury bonds, although it is wider, it is still nowhere near worrisome levels. And um, despite this concerning uh, yield curve uh, dynamic. Uh, there still are other indicators out there like the Conference Board Leading Economic Index, which is still flashing um, growth uh, green signals. Um, in other news, the Federal Reserve left interest rates unchanged and said it was unlikely they'd be raised again in 2019. The Fed also revised down its projection for growth to 2.1%. Although Fed Chair Jerome Powell said the economy was, quote, uh, still in a good place. Um, and in the latest Brexit news, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May's plan to use the threat of a long delay to pressure the House of Commons uh, to support um, her EU exit plan uh, fell apart. 
Uh, the House Speaker, John Burko, declared that under the rules, uh, May could not submit a plan this session that had already been rejected. Still, uh, the EU did approve an extension to May 22nd to work out kinks if the House approves the plan this week. All right, uh, let's now jump from economics and politics to a few specific stocks. Um, in the news this week, uh, Disney closed the much-anticipated $71.3 billion acquisition of Fox Film and Entertainment Assets. Uh, the deal combines Disney's film studios, which includes Star Wars Marvel and Pixar franchises, um, ABC Broadcasting Network, ESPN Networks, and Disneyland theme parks. Um, this is getting combined with Fox Film Studio, which uh, interestingly has been around for 104 years, and Fox TV Studio along with the FX and National Geographic Networks. Um, there's some notable properties from Fox, such as X-Men and Fantastic Four, um, which should fold very nicely into Disney's Marvel franchise. Um, after, um, coincidentally, Marvel sold these same properties in uh, the 1990s when they were having some uh, financial difficulties. Um, Disney's also picking up a controlling stake in Hulu. Um, that, that'll help it... Um, or position it much better in the streaming world. And now that the merger has been comp, uh, consummated, Disney sees at least $2 billion in cost synergies by 2021. Uh, the deal helps solidify Disney's Disney Fox's Hollywood powerhouse status. Um, as evidence, Disney and Fox combined for 11 awards at the recent um, Oscars, which is nearly half of the awards presented. Uh, the deal also positions the company to compete better against Netflix, Amazon, and Apple and other streaming tech giants that are crowding into the enter entertainment space, um, as I mentioned, with its controlling Hulu stake. Um, just to give you a little perspective about um, what a large market share it'll have, Disney took um, a market-leading position of 26% of the $12 billion U.S. box office last year, and overnight with um, the merger, that'll take take them from 26% to 36% share. And to give you some context, Warner Brothers, um, its closest competitor, only had 16% share. Uh, Rupert Murdoch's of uh, the Legacy Fox may have sold off his entertainment assets, but he'll still remain a media force. Um, as he will keep the controlling, um, will keep controlling uh, his right-wing Fox News and Fox Sports broadcasting channels. Um, he also continues to control News Corp, home of his global publishing assets, which include the Times and the Sun. Um, lastly, uh, day before completion of the deal, uh, Murdoch's new entity, Fox Corp, began trading on the Nasdaq um, market under the ticker F. OX. Um, in other stock news, Biogen Inc. Uh, cratered 34% for the week. Uh, the stock plummeted after the company halted Alzheimer's trials that were designed to slow cognitive decline in patients with early Alzheimer's disease. Uh, this has been a tough cookie to crack as there have not been any new approved treatments for Alzheimer's in more than 15 years. 
Uh, the last drug approval came in 2003. Um, the reason trials like these are so important um, is because there are 5.8 million Americans suffering from uh, this disease, according to the Alzheimer's Association. Uh, the failure of Biogen's drug is a big setback um, for not just the company, but also for the so-called amyloid hypothesis, which holds that a buildup of protein fragments called beta amyloid is the primary cause of Alzheimer's disease. Um, in other merger news, Fidelity National Information Services, ticker FIS, is building, uh, or I'm sorry, is buying WorldPay, uh, ticker WP, in a $33.5 billion cash and stock deal. The merger creates a fintech giant by combining WorldPay's payment processing with FIS's businesses of providing financial services to banks and retailers. WorldPay was up 12% for the week, while FIS was up 1% um, in an overall down stock market for the week. Lastly, in initial public offering news, Lyft, um, ticker LYFT, set the valuation range for its IPO at $22 to $23 billion, or $62 to $68 per share. And the number two ride-hailing company has started its roadshow uh, you know, as we speak. Also, Levi Strauss, ticker LEVI, went public this week at $17 a share and closed the week above $22 per share. All right, I would now like to welcome our listeners to this historic event our inaugural Weekly Grind podcast interview. Uh, with all joking aside, I have to say I'm honored to have Russ Murdoch here, the president and founder of Seabreeze Capital Management, um, located in our backyard here in Huntington Beach, California. So welcome, Russ. Thanks, Wade. Um, so I want to first start out by giving a little background about Russ. Um, he went to Cal State Fullerton, um, for undergrad, he got his degree in business, went on to get his MBA at Pepperdine. He's a chartered financial analyst uh, like myself, so we're in an elite club. Uh, and if we go through Russ's long career in the, in the field, um, looks like he started at Pacific Life um, back in the uh, late 80s. Um, went on to Eclectic Associates and uh, started Seabreeze um, in 2003. Yep, 2003. Mm -hmm. Well, um, yeah, maybe you can just talk a little bit about uh, how you got into the business first, how, um, you know, some of the things that you did at Pacific Life and, uh, you know, how it led to the uh, founding of Seabreeze. Yeah, um, I... I've always been interested in finance. I mean, ever since I was 10, I've always been interested in finance and investments, looking at the stock pages and things like that and kind of get an interest and develop a field. But majoring in business in college and then going on for my MBA, uh, I got a job at Pacific Life and corporate finance and kind of evolved towards the investing side there with, um, you know, some investments we made in, in venture capital and private equity and when an opening came at Eclectic Associates, I moved over there and um, 
which is kind of a boutique investment firm up in Fullerton. And um, after being there for a few years, just saw the possibilities of carving out my own small piece of the pie, kind of like micro cap, nano cap type stocks and uh, a lot of evaluation, a lot of deep commitment to uh, to to investing in those. So yeah, so that's kind of uh, what I've been doing since then and just have been growing that over the years. So you said 10 years old. Uh, was there a mentor, a family member, or school? I know when I, I got started in the business or got introduced was my mom's money. And so I helped manage that and got introduced in high school to a stock market competition. But um, 10 years old is uh, early age to get exposed. So what um, what led you to that? Uh, you know, just an interest, general interest. There was no family members. There was no catalyst. It was just a general interest in, in reading and learning. And uh, I saw that and I've always been a numbers person. So it kind of was a natural gravitation. And especially this part of the field where there's it's not just numbers, there's an art as well. So it's a blending of the art and the math. Mm-hmm. Well, I know another thing that we share in common is that we both work at a registered investment advisory firm, which is a fee-only fiduciary firm. So maybe you can just enlighten the listeners a little bit on how that differentiates Seabreeze from some of the industry competition. Right. A lot of the industry competition is uh, is based on uh, commission structure versus a fee-only structure, which is two uh, a very distinct difference. Uh, a fee-only structure basically puts your interests uh, in alignment with the client. And I think a commission model might do that or might not do it as well <clears throat> because the interests are there once they've got the commission. They have no financial incentive to uh, service the client, and many don't. Uh, while as many do, however, but I think on a fee-only basis, you've got a lot more incentive to service the client and make sure they're happy because uh, there's no penalty for leaving. Right, yeah. I mean, uh, my perspective on it too, and I think maybe we've talked about this before, is um, our, our industry isn't regulated like a lot of other industries. If you think about uh, if you're a doctor, you go to med school, you're an accountant, you get a CPA, um, you know, you're a lawyer, you go to law school, but for us, you take a few hour test and you're good to go. And that, I think a lot of the problems that came out in the financial crisis led to that. So a lot of, uh, a lot of the, I guess, severe activity that happened during the financial crisis, I think is coming under more scrutiny and that this idea of a fiduciary, um, having the client's best interest is getting more attention now and is, is helping firms like ours grow. Yeah, I think being a fiduciary is is huge. You you if you're not putting your client's interests above your own, you're doing them a huge disservice. And I think the the world in general or the the marketplace in general is really waking up to that. I'm getting a lot more clients asking uh, about how that works and what it is to be a fiduciary, and mm-hmm. I think it's very important. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, so one of the things you mentioned is that you're a value microcap manager, or at least that's one of the areas that you focus on. So maybe you can dig a little bit deeper in talking about your investing philosophy and maybe add um, what were some of your influences um, um, in how you developed that uh, 
uh, philosophy? Yeah, you know, a lot of it comes down to uh, to my education and training and just looking at the world in general because people talk about this whole thing of market efficiency. And, um, and really, if you look at, you know, you could go out there and buy the S&P 500 index just through a mutual fund or an ETF, and you're going to get the market return. Um, and the information is there, the trading is there, and we call that efficient. Uh, however, there's parts of the market that are not and are a lot less efficient, and there can be a lot of opportunities there that people overlook. There's stocks that aren't covered by analysts. There are stocks that are uh, very thinly traded, and a lot of it becomes a, a, a trade based on emotion or just a whim at the moment. And sometimes you can find some really good opportunities in these smaller stocks that are less covered. And that's in my research, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of those, and not that they are going to do well today or tomorrow, but they're a good long-term, long-term buy. And you can see these companies... And, and how they grow and that they're very, very undervalued relative to the market. And, and there's a lot of money to be made if done right. Uh, but obviously you have to be patient because something that's cheap might be cheap for a while. But ultimately, my belief is that the value will be realized uh, for a patient investor. And sometimes you can get some very good returns. Your returns, however, however won't be correlated with the market in general. Mm-hmm. And so people who expect gee, that the S&P was up, you know, two percent this month and uh, these stocks were down or only up one percent or they were up six percent or whatever, you're going to see things like that variation relative to the market. But there are a lot of opportunities there. And that's what led me to have a, a kind of a side specialty in stocks like that. Mm-hmm. In other words, not all my stocks are going to be small micro cap value stocks, but uh, I think that's where a lot of the advantages are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm definitely interested and we'll, we'll definitely get into some of those specific um, stocks that you're looking at. But it, it sounds like um, a lot of your philosophy came through self-education, mm-hmm. trial and error investing. Um, and I'll cut in too. Uh, you know, uh, everyone talks about, yeah, Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett. The early Warren Buffett really, really was a big advocate of these stocks. Unfortunately, he's gotten so large that uh, they would be a nit on his radar. But uh, the early Warren Buffett, that's basically what he was buying. Yeah, he was a Ben Graham, Dodd, uh, yep. Yep. deep value. Deep value, deep analysis, you know, cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you'd say uh, reading books and following um, his earlier investing style was an influence um, were there any managers um, that you worked with or followed um, that uh, got you into this microcap space, or did this happen after Pacific Life and Eclectic, or were you doing some of this investing? Methods? I was doing some of this during that time as well, and a lot of the people that I looked at were, um, you know, uh, like Chuck Royce, who has the Royce Funds, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, people in that kind of vein. Uh, they're, uh, you know, have an eye for that and you can see it in their holdings that, you know, uh, unfortunately they're having to run a pool of investments and having to be broadly invested so they can't concentrate as much as I can in a portfolio. And so they tend to follow the micro cap or small cap value market a little bit closer, but those would be influences and Mm -hmm. you'd see a lot of their holdings 
and style of investing, uh, I've kind of uh, adopted a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because that's that's one of the things that we do also at Sedoxia is, uh, you know, I, I have some screens that I run, but another part of where we come up with ideas is following managers that I've, you know, literally followed for decades mm -hmm. and look through their quarterly filings and see, you know, what types of changes are being made. And, um, you know, for the most part, you know, a lot of these portfolios are very index driven. And, mm -hmm. um, but occasionally you'll find some outlier ideas that, you know, I haven't followed as closely or never heard of. And, and that can be uh, a source. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about how you come up with your investment ideas and, uh, you know, how you identify and implement um, your, your strategies. Yeah, there's really two ways that I'd look at for my, you know, because I kind of employ a hub and spoke methodology for the vast majority of my clients where uh, a lot of the money is in core investments, which is more closer to the, the market. You know, the market's going to do well and it's going to do on its own. And, uh, and then the spoke method is from there, we take and carve out certain portions of a portfolio, depending on risk tolerance of the client and invest in some unique areas that have opportunities for, for some decent growth. And that's the area where a lot more research needs to be done. And, and I'm really looking at two things. One area is I'm doing screens looking for some good values. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see a lot more of that, like I mentioned, in the small cap and the, what I call nano cap type stocks, really tiny stocks. You see a lot of good values there. And it's really screens. And then once I screen out and start digging in deep, you throw out a lot. And then on a decent occasion, you find a gem and you do a lot more research on the gem to make sure what you're seeing is really there. And it's it's digging into 10Ks, 10Qs, all their you know financial documents and posted documents uh, and, and looking for those gems. And a lot of times it comes down to meeting with management to really understand them and how they operate. And the other area that I'm looking at is just trying to stay on top of the the economy and the markets and uh, and the new economy, what's happening out there. And you start seeing things in the new economy that, that are advantageous too, that are completely different than the value-driven small cap type stuff. And I'll throw out like a uh, global payments. You know, mm -hmm. the banks are kind of becoming less and less a, a, a factor in, in the market. And you're starting to see the PayPal's and Venmo's of the world and Square and you know, globally, the payments are bypassing banks and people are, you know, uh, going to each other, you know, going direct uh, for payments. You know, gee, Sam's going to um, Venmo, you know, Roger $20 and it happens just by pressing a button on your phone, you know. And, uh, you know, you're starting to see a lot more of that in the new economy and things like that, I think, will become big over time. And I've started moving into some investments there. You know, not only domestic, but globally. Mm -hmm. uh, I see a company in South Africa that I bought into, a company in Brazil, um, you know, uh, PayPal as well, things like that. I start seeing things in the new economy, you know, things that are changing the world, self-driving cars, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, I mean, you, you are investing in um, growth companies within the value space yes. also. And um, that's one of the things that, always kinds of frustrates me is when I talk to investors or potential investors, they want to 
pigeonhole me into one type of style. Um, and, you know, I've had um, historically, you know, we've owned traditional growth companies like Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon. You know, Apple's an example of, you know, a big Warren Buffett holding a value and other value managers get in and it's, you know, migrated across style spectrums. But um, it is interesting. I'd be uh, wanting to hear more your viewpoint about that idea of new economy stocks where traditional value managers are looking at the accounting metrics only, right? They're looking at the balance sheet. But when you look at, um, you know, what you term kind of new economy stocks, a lot of the value or objectively you could argue most of the value is coming in and out of the door every day as far as their employee base, you know, when you, you think of the, the Google, Facebook, Apples and Amazons. So um, are you integrating more of that um, into how you look at some of these companies and uh, you could call it intangible assets or other things or, you know, Coca-Cola, the, the secret formula? Um, <laughs> You know, how, how does that uh, come into your, into your uh, process? Yeah, you know, it is a different kind of thinking and a different kind of analysis altogether. And, you know, it really comes down to me to looking at the opportunities. And a lot of times you have to kind of tread lightly because they can make one mistake and it's gone or, you know, everything just blows up. Or something can happen, like in the case of Square, you've got some bizarre management things happening or something small changes or a new competitor comes along with something slightly better and eats your lunch. And so you have to tread lightly there. However, you know, having said that, some people just have a better monopoly. Like an Apple for a while and even now has a decent monopoly and uh, there's good growth there and, and I think that monopoly is sustainable. And likewise with PayPal and Venmo, PayPal owns Venmo, uh, I think you've got a decent monopoly there, and I think they're going to capitalize on it for years to come. And since the economy seems to be moving that way, and you've got a whole generation coming along that doesn't even have checkbooks. And uh, if you don't have a checkbook, you're, you're not even going to use a bank. I mean, you're going to you're going to use a bank, but you're really going to bypass the bank and use a payment system like a PayPal or Venmo. Right. No, that makes sense. And. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly about um, some of these sexier growth areas. Um, there might be a more uh, short-term upside potential, but <clears throat> there's no question you have the obsolescence risk. Um, you know, the, the classic uh, um, BlackBerry or, or, yeah. <laughs> or Blockbuster examples um, where you have a dominant company, but then something comes along the way and, and makes it obsolete. Um, so uh, once you find these companies through your screening um, processes, what, what type of valuation, valuation metrics do you look at in, in guiding your, your buy decisions? Uh, I use the value, I don't use the valuation metrics with the, with the growth stocks. There's a lot of intuition that goes into those and you really can't value those. People do come up with valuation metrics. And I think a lot of that's really, really um, uh, unsustainable and tough personally. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, they're looking at, you know, price to this, price to that. But unfortunately, the denominator is a, is a moving target and it's going to be different a year today than it is today. On the value side, however, uh, I really do start, and this is kind of uh, 
counterintuitive to what's happening in 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 the industry and what people are trained to think. But uh, I really start with the balance sheet. I look at the assets. I look at the liabilities. I try to value the assets separate from what's reported because what's reported is prescribed by you know ancient accounting methods, which still persist today. Um, but uh, you try to value what's on the What's on, what's on the asset side of the balance sheet and then subtract the liabilities and see what's left and compare that to the market value. And only then do you factor in what kind of income and cash flow they have to make sure that supports my valuation metric. And usually what I'm doing is ending up with some kind of modified uh, price to book to start out with, price to book value, and then making sure that the company's trading at anywhere from you know two-thirds of that to half of that Right, I should say the company, the stock price, is trading at two thirds to maybe half of that, and only then do I think about buying. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I'm factoring in risks and other things, uh, external risks, and you know, balance sheet risk, income statement risk as well, uh, volatility risk. But th- these are things that need to be factored in. But that's where you find a lot of the gems out there because mm-hmm. you can be buying some of these companies, and that's the old Warren Buffett. You're buying some of these companies at cents on the dollar. And I've seen some out there that are trading at 30, 40 cents on the dollar, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and it's pretty amazing that uh, they can persist for a while, but they can't persist forever at, at those cheap prices. Right. So you find that margin of safety yep. that you're That's, looking for. Yep. Um, so getting back to this uh, strategy of investing in micro caps, maybe you can talk about what you define as micro cap and uh, as I uh, experience, and I'm sure you do too, it's it can be difficult getting into these um, micro cap companies because of liquidity, and getting in and getting out isn't is can be uh, painful in in certain instances. So there has to be enough upside potential for your investors. Uh, what would you say is your average? holding period for some of these micro cap stocks? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. People are always asking about holding period, and I don't really focus on holding period because what I'm doing is I'm buying at X, and I basically target what I think it should be trading at. And so if I'm buying it, let's say, 20% under what I think it should be trading at, um, I'll sell if it hits that, that target price, whether it's a week or a year or two years, it's really based on hitting that target price. And I've had some of these that have hit a target price in a matter of weeks, and I've had some that have taken years. And so it's really all over the board, and I don't focus on a holding period per se. So it ends up being, however, when you average it out, it ends up being you know, a year or two years, mm-hmm. um, probably on average. But I have had a much, much quicker, and I have had a much, much longer. Mm-hmm. You know, just uh, things happen, economy markets, specific company events, whatever, that that uh, aid that or detract from that. Right. So I, I'd imagine in the, this bull market where, you know, from the bottom, uh, you know, the S&Ps, you know, effectively quadrupled, uh, the I would imagine the holding period is probably a little bit shorter because a lot of these companies are hitting your price targets. Whereas if we're in a... Um, a bear market or a market that's in a sideways trading range, 
um, you might be more patient. Um, it might take longer for these companies to hit your price targets. No, actually, that's not necessarily the case because, uh, interestingly enough, a lot of times when we have a, quote, bull market where the S&P is going up, a lot of times some of these microcaps will lag, like what happened in 2014 and 2015. The S&P was going up and microcaps, especially on the value side, were going down at quite a decent clip. And so it was kind of sometimes it's counterintuitive. The market could be going up and they'll be going down. And a lot of times the market's going down and they'll be going up. Like in 2016, they just took off. And 2016 was a good year, but for uh, these investments, it was a great year. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, we're talking it probably on average did double what the market did. Yeah. Yeah. So so there are some periods where it doesn't quite happen that way. But in general, you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting topic to me because if you just look back historically, what trading costs used to be, you know, it could cost you $100 or $200 to make a trade and the holding period for professional money managers um, would be measured in, in years. Whereas today, you know, a lot of these brokerage firms, um, trading costs, you know, I think of like Robinhood, trading costs are free. Yep. And holding periods for professional managers has gotten less than a year. Uh, and so when we talked about getting pigeonholed, um, you know, I've, I've worked in the growth space for a long time, but at Sedoxia, we, we, we're kind of going against the grain. We, we own for, you know, anywhere from three to five years. And um, some of those big cap tech names we've owned for, you know, over, over a decade. But, uh, that's not the case in the <laughs> growth space. When you're a momentum manager, it's you buy what goes up and you sell what goes yep. down. And, and, you know, even in this bull market, we've had plenty of 10, 20% market corrections and, um, you know, things get whipped around a lot. Yeah. And I'll have to throw in there, uh, liquidity is a big issue in this space, uh, because these stocks are thinly traded and a couple of trades can move the stock five, eight percent. Yeah, small trades that I do, you know, and so it, there's a lot of patience and watching for pockets of liquidity. When I say pockets of liquidity, you might see some shares all of a sudden come on the market and someone's needing to sell for some some odd reason. And um, sometimes a reason they're willing to sell at a pretty cheap price. So it's picking up then or if you realize the price, it's waiting for someone who's interested in buying. And, uh, and those don't come every day. Right, so you're you're actively following um, the markets, especially in stocks that you're interested in adding or or um, subtracting. Yeah, very much so. Uh, so a lot of the things we've been talking about so far have been mostly bottom up, fundamentally based driven. Uh, you know, clients and everything we hear on TV is very much, uh, in many cases, driven about the macro and political environment. So just curious um, how much of that top-down macroeconomic perspective flows into your investment philosophy, if any? Uh, really none at all. I don't know um, you know, uh, what a top-down perspective really gets you. I look at a lot of the big firms that use a top-down perspective, and uh, the vast majority of them have returns no better than the market. So in other words, they put all this uh, investment into systems and people and 
processes and everything like that, and they just get consistently beat by the market. And so I'm kind of look at that and say, what are they really getting by trying to, you know, look at all, put all these variables into to their model, and there's always one variable they seem to miss. When you have thousands of variables or hundreds of variables, there's always one you're going to miss. And so I don't really see a lot of value into that. I think people would be better off from that perspective just buying the index, which is very easy to do. Um, I think the bottom-up approach is much, much better, meaning you're actually digging down into companies and looking for good values or good opportunities and buying them regardless of what people are predicting, you know, the economy is going to do this or that. Generally, they're either right or wrong, but they're very, very, not very often correct. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I agree with you 1,000%. Uh, uh, and uh, I always go back to Peter Lynch, you know, the, the great investor at Fidelity and the Magellan Fund. And, you know, he, he mentioned a few things that resonated with me. And first of all, it was, you know, how many of these uh, economists and strategists do you see on the Forbes, you know, 100 list? And the answer is uh, virtually zero uh, because, yeah, they, they're, you mentioned these endless number of variables. Not only are they endless, but they're constantly changing. And like you said, they're constantly adjusting. And uh, Peter Lynch, you know, he specifically said, if, if you spend 13 minutes a year looking at the economy, you spend 10 minutes too many. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, so, you know, the, the way that I look at it is you're looking for um, good companies and good businesses at good prices. Um, regardless of what the economy does. And, uh, you know, it's like the quote that says, you know, we correctly picked, you know, um, was it 13 of the last 10 recessions yep. or whatever it is. It's um, the, the, the success rate on, on picking the timing is, is pretty low. Yeah. But uh, so, I mean, just given, given that, uh, it's difficult, we agree, to kind of pick the direction of the economy, but uh, objectively, um, this has been a, a bull market, at least over the last uh, nine to 10 years. How um, difficult or easy has it been for you to find investment opportunities, um, given the large run we've seen in the market, uh, you know, finding those companies at half to two thirds of the book value, is that list shrinking or in the micro cap space, have there been a lot left behind and that list is um, still significant? Uh, actually, there have been a lot left behind. And what we've been seeing in the last couple of years, and actually the last 10 years, but even more so in the last couple of years, is a big movement towards the indexes. And those indexes primarily the S&P 500 index and you've got 10,000 companies out there, and you're talking 500 companies that probably uh, constitute about 95% of the market value of the whole market. And so you've got this small portion of all these small companies out there that have not as much participated in that. And they seem to move in, in uh, spurts, and spurts and stops. And uh, this you know, run up we've had in the last few years has kind of left a lot of these micro caps behind. 
And so I do see some good opportunities out there. Uh, I think they're fairly safe, although, you know, if, if the, the market, if people aren't buying them, they're, they're, they're not going to go up. And uh, like you say, it's one thing that's inevitably going to happen. It just doesn't move in conjunction with the market. So to answer your question directly, I think there's a lot of good opportunities right now in a lot of these small companies. And what I suspect we're going to see in the next few years is a consolidation in a lot of these smaller companies because the market really is moving a lot more towards indexing and these small companies are just getting left behind. I mm-hmm. talked to the owners of the or the, the management of a lot of these small companies and they're kind of perplexed that, gee, the stock price hasn't really gone up even though we're making money, uh, the economy's good, we're selling lots of product, uh, yet the stock price isn't moving. Mm-hmm. And those companies are primed for a buyout. And buyouts are great if you own the stock because they usually get sold out at a premium to, to the current price. Right, and as a patient value investor, was it uh, Ben Graham said, you know, in the short run, the market's a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, uh, that value will get recognized at some right. point. And that, that's one of the advantages of, of being a patient value investor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's been a lot in the news, whether it's Brexit, China trade, uh, Fed policy, uh, Mueller, uh, political investigations. Um, I imagine um, you have a, a segment of your client base that is, is following these uh, types of headlines. Um, how do you communicate with your clients and what do you think is most important um, in communicating um, with, with your investors? Yeah, uh, I look at all that. To me, it's all noise. Uh, I try, I basically look at it and say, is there anything of real substance here, whether it be Brexit or, you know, Fed rates or Mueller or Trump or Obama or whatever, you know, I look at this and say, how much of this is noise and how much, how much of it really affects things? And very little affects things. I mean, obviously, Fed raising interest rates is going to have an impact on the market. Uh, a lot of the companies I buy have, you know, especially in the microcap space and the value micro, microcap space have very little debt. So Fed rate shouldn't influence them, but it influences the broad market and does have an impact. But to me, the vast majority of it is noise and you shouldn't really be buying or selling based on that. It really comes down to valuations and buying what, you know, good, cheap opportunities. And that's what I tell my clients. We're not going to be moving based on this. We're going to, we've set up an asset allocation strategy. We've set up a buy and sell mechanism. And we're going to ride through that regardless of the news. Mm-hmm. And people do tend to panic. People do, do tend to get greedy, unfortunately, at the wrong times. People always panic when the market's going down and get greedy on, when the market's going up. And they should be doing the opposite. And that's what I tell my clients. And they're usually pretty good with that. You know, you do run into some angst when there's movements like what we had in December. But the vast majority, I just say, hey, we got to ride through this. You just let it go and we're going to be fine in the long run. If we're invested properly and our time frame is proper, uh, we'll just ride through it and we'll be fine. Right. Yeah, I know I experience the same things. I mean, part part of my job, it seems like, is I'm part psychologist. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And I think objectively, most people understand that best decisions aren't made when you're emotional. And uh, people like uh, you and me, we've we've seen uh, a lot of ups and downs, and so I think we're kind of scarred, uh, built up some <laughs> scar tissue. We can kind of uh, give people perspective, but it, it you know this is people's life savings, so. You know, I constantly remind myself that, uh, you know, money's an emotional uh, thing and, you know, I have to put on my psych- psychologist hat every once in a yes. while. Uh, well, speaking of good, cheap opportunities, um, maybe you can provide a, a few examples of stocks that kind of exemplify your microcap um, value process. Yeah, you know, there's a few companies that I, that I, I'm, I'm Pretty heavy in right now. Obviously, some are some are microcaps, some aren't. Uh, you know, I'm looking at some a lot of oil stocks right now. Oil's uh, been kind of beaten up. Uh, even the oil prices have come back up. A lot of the oil stocks haven't. And you're looking at big names out there like a, you know, Occidental Petroleum or a Schlumberger, which are just by all historical measures very very cheap. Uh, but then when you drill down to the microcap space, you know, I look at companies like. Uh, Titan Worldwide or Orion or um, uh, Rayoneer, uh, Advanced Materials or Gulf Island uh, Fabrication. These are small companies that are um, making money that, uh, you know, are, you know, maybe out of favor or not covered for various reasons, but um, with very good prospects, uh, just trading it cheap by historical measures and uh, by all analysis, and you know, those are companies that I look at. There's another company that I'm, I've got a very large holding in. I won't mention the name. That's a teaser, Wade. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm trying to uh, uh, trying to keep, uh, you know, when an opportunity comes along, buying a reserve for my clients. Uh, but it's very, very cheap. The opportunities are very, very good in this one, and uh, you know, they're in a good, solid business that uh, consistent consistently chugs away with profit year after year, yet they're trading at a very, very cheap price. Yeah, I know that that's what makes our lives interesting when we find those ideas that we have a strong conviction mm-hmm. for and, uh, you know, put our money where our mouth is and, and see it come to fruition. Uh, but on, on this idea of oil stocks, so given what we've talked about earlier, I, I imagine there's not a um, a price per barrel on WTI or Brent that you're necessarily basing your valuation or purchase decisions on? Is it more of a mean reversion where these stocks get beaten down and your view is that oil prices will go up and down, but uh, eventually they'll mean revert and when prices eventually go back up, that the value will be reflected in these companies? And that's exactly what it is, Wade. That's reversion to the mean. Really, it's uh, these things go through their cycles. They get cheap, they get expensive, they get cheap, they get expensive. Uh, you sell when they're expensive, you buy when they're cheap. And right now, they're cheap. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so you've, at, at Seabreeze, and you've been doing this uh, for a while, um, been blessed with uh, building a successful company. Uh, there's a lot going on in our industry, um, whether it's robo-advisors, index funds, ETFs, uh, fee pressures, 
Um, it doesn't make our job any less interesting, um, but you know, there's a lot of college grads. I, you know, I work with interns and um, a lot of people are still interested in this field for um, some obvious reasons, but given uh, your successful career, uh, what advice would you give um, a, a college graduate um, or someone going through college that's interested in this investing field? Uh, do you have a, a half glass full or half glass empty view and what, what, what would you tell them? You know, I have a glass half full. I think there are a lot of opportunities out there that are going to change as the new economy uh, evolves. Uh, I, I was an adjunct professor at uh, uh, Pepperdine uh, for about five years and taught in the MBA program there. And what I did see a, a lot there and just what I see in general now is I think a lot of our college students are kind of um, betrayed by the academic orthodoxy. I mean, the, the stuff that's being taught now in investments and finance, so this stuff was developed in the 50s. And uh, they're taught this, uh, you know, this kind of, um, you know, uh, academic, you know, mumbo jumbo that has no resemblance to what happens in the real world. And they've got to spout this stuff to pass their tests, but it doesn't really make any sense. And, uh, you know, I would, I would tell them to challenge conventional wisdom, uh, look at what really works, uh, go out there and, and, and be a contrarian, look, look on your own at what really works. Don't pay attention to what, you know, CAPM and, you know, all these things that they preach in school and, you know, uh, this is how companies make decisions and whatever. It doesn't happen that way in real life, Wade. We all know that, you know, um, <laughs> And, you know, chasing charts and whatever, you know, people make decisions for different reasons than uh, than what's portrayed in the textbooks. So, you know, yeah, you have to understand this stuff and you have to spout the rhetoric to, to pass your tests. But in real life, you know, learn what goes on out there and make your own decisions. Don't uh, don't have a professor, or, you know, uh, someone tell you what to do. I think there's a lot. The world's a lot bigger than that. Yeah, I, I would. uh echo the fact that uh, it was a little frustrating in my undergraduate days with all the theories of, you know, supply and demand charts. And, um, you know, I would say I use uh, a very small portion of that today, mm -hmm. whereas the MBA experience where it was a lot more hands-on practical experience was more helpful. But yeah, my, my view in general on the industry and is kind of tied to um, all industries. So uh, I, I think there's no question that there's a lot of pressures that are coming down on in our industry, um, in many cases driven by technology. Uh, but I think um, there isn't any industry that isn't being impacted by technology. And so uh, I think for any, any student that's figuring out what they're interested in, um, if you have the uh, fortitude and uh, motivation and uh, stick-to-itiveness um, that, yeah, you could be successful in any field, no matter, you know, what it is. It, it's just, uh, you know, the, the environment's changing, I think, for a lot of different industries. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think um, you and I have... Um, gained some uh, gray hairs with the, with all the volatility <laughs> in the market over the years. 
But um, what does Russ Murdoch do um, in his free time when he's not tearing through uh, balance sheets and looking at companies in the microcap space for for fun or um, le leisure? <laughs> uh, well, one of the things that I've kind of been doing the last year, year and a half, is you know I've had this Porsche for a while and finally got it out on the track and just loved it. So I've been doing a lot more of that, doing some track racing and track events, which is which is a blast. I mean, it really is a blast. Um, but, you know, things with family, too. We've got a small um, duffy, uh, which is a small boat that uh, is enclosed, and uh, we like to do that in our free time and travel and such. I love European travel. Having lived there when I was growing up for a while uh, in Germany, uh, love travel. Oh, nice. But, uh, you know, those are always fun. Uh, family. I've got two two grown daughters, so um, uh, they're lots of fun. Okay, I didn't I didn't know that uh, German fact. So um, maybe you <laughs> learn to appreciate a German beer or two. But I I guess the the lesson learned here is that um, with your Porsche race driving, that value managers can take on some risk. That it's not pure risk aversion. No, no, everything, everything's risky. So you just got to live life and, and enjoy it as much as possible, and and uh, just know that risk exists. But you're 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 you can walk out today and get hit by a truck. So you just got to live life. You got to enjoy it, and you got to push hard. I I definitely agree with that. Uh, well, Russ, um, I appreciate you being the uh, the guinea pig <laughs> for the first inaugural. Uh, Investing Caffeine Weekly Grind podcast interview. Uh, but before we leave, um, maybe you could tell uh, our listeners if they want to learn more about Seabreeze Capital Management or some of the investment services that you offer, what, what, what are the best ways to get hold of you? Yeah, probably the easiest way is just a phone call at 714-846-3193. Uh, or they can go online, seabreeze-capital.com. Uh, that's a hyphen. Uh, but uh, uh, that would be an easy way as well. And uh, see about me and uh, my email address is on there as well. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Russ. And I look forward to having this uh, conversation in the future. Okay, thanks for having me, Wade. This concludes another edition of the Weekly Grind podcast by Investing Caffeine. Thank you again for listening, and before I sign off for the week, once again, I want to thank Russ Murdoch of Seabreeze Capital, and I also want to thank our executive producer, Kevin Wheeler, for providing all the technical expertise behind the weekly grind. Uh, as always, we appreciate your feedback, so shoot us a message at info at or call us at 949-258-4322. Enjoy your weekly grind and see you again next week.